0: Jesse, what are we doing here? It isn't Wednesday. That's right, Andy. But today we have something extra special. An author interview that will bring you even deeper into our most recent case. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to a special interview episode of Love Murder. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Joni West, the author of Full Frontal Murder, a memoir in which family, murder, and neuroscience collide. There is so much fascinating territory to explore here. So we want to dive right in. But before we do, a quick note that if you haven't listened to our most recent episode yet, which is episode 86, and if you're you know, listening when it came out, it's yesterday, please go back and listen to that first so you have a great context for Joni's work. All right. Uh, hi, Joni.
1: Hey, how you doing?
0: Good. It's so nice to finally meet you guys, Joni and I. Went back and forth on emails all week. I feel like I know her, and I'm so glad to finally see you and meet you.
1: Me too. I feel like I know you too. <laughs> we have been going back and forth a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so Joni, even though I told everyone to listen to the episode, I know some people might just want to hear the interview. So, can you please sum up your memoir, why you wrote it, what's it about, and why it might be particularly interesting to true crime fans?
1: Okay. Well, 31 years ago, out of nowhere, uh, I was at the time I was 29 and, uh, my father was 65 and out of nowhere, my father, um, committed a murder that was a big, a big headline kind of tabloid murder. Um, he wound up killing my stepmother and throwing her out the window of their 12 story, uh, apartment in the middle of the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is very posh. And, um, and a, a lot of people, the reason that I wrote the book is because a lot of people saw the headlines, you know, uh, one of them on the front of the um, the New York Daily News. They had um, uh, high rise horror, you know, hubby tosses wife out window or something like that. So people walked into it thinking my father <clears throat> was this horrible person and people had scenarios in their heads of what must have happened. And the real story was so unlike anything that anyone could have imagined even myself because at that time i didn't understand why it happened at all um the 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 subtitle on my book which um also gives some insight is a daughter reveals the true story behind the shocking crime that went from tabloid to textbook and will change the way you see blame and brains and um basically you know i had a i had a great childhood growing up my father was uh, Fabulous. Like He was the apple of my eye. I could not ask for a better father. I grew up in a very privileged uh, situation in a great town in the suburbs of New York City and um, went to private schools and had everything that a kid could want. And my father was just the best. And not only did he provide all those things, but he was very attentive and very interested in whatever I got interested in. I was very into photography. And he would not just get, get me the best equipment, but he would take me to galleries and museums and, you know, and he knew stuff about it. And um, on the other hand, my mother was the exact opposite. My mother was a real challenge for me.
0: I want to get into the personal relationships of the people in your family. And I think it is definitely worth, mentioning that your father was absolutely a wonderful father and person. And guys, the big twist on this one, if you haven't listened, is that after the horrible crime, it is revealed that Joni's father, Herbert Weinstein, had a gigantic cyst taking up a lot of frontal lobe space about the size of an orange. Um, I posted the Instagram yesterday, so hopefully you've seen it. If you haven't, go to our Instagram. Because once you see this scan, I mean, you cannot think that there's a chance that it wasn't affecting his behavior.
1: Yes, (laughs) very true. And I didn't know that my father, when this murder happened, it was very out of the blue. Um, My mother died when I was 20 and my father met my stepmother a month later and they got married a year later. Um, I was, I did not like her, um, but I, I mean you know i do understand that she is the victim here and i have nothing but empathy for her family and for her loved ones you know like nothing but empathy for them but um in terms of my father our relationship kind of got dissolved through that that period but i never saw um i never saw anything that would make me question that my father had a brain tumor he was different i knew he was different than other People, because as I talked about in the book, he had the the level of Zen that people spend like zillions of dollars to try to get that that like chill in their life. Like, you know, if, if something happened, uh, you know, some big major disaster happened, he would just brush it off. You know, I talked about in the book where um, you know this giant tree fell on our house and my mother went you know crazy and my father just looked at it and went, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, he he never he he never was anxious worried i i only realized these things in retrospect um that i never saw him i never saw him angry i never saw him worried i never saw him anxious i never saw a whole range of negative emotions from him but i saw all the positive ones but when this when after the murder happened um we uh when we went back to the apartment, uh, with the lawyer, it was, it became very obvious for the first time that something was very wrong with my father, because we went to this apartment building where, you know, they lived. And, um, we had to, first of all, we had to go, it was me, my brother and my father's lawyer, and we had to go past the doorman. And I'm like, just dying of embarrassment and, you know, just feeling horrible. I'm going to have to walk, By a doorman who knows, you know, who was there when all this happened. My father walks by like it's any other day. We get in the elevator and I'm just like wanting to, you know, disappear and he's just seeming normal. We get to the apartment door and the lawyer has to cut all the crime scene tape because there's all, it's all taped like every which way. And I'm scared to walk in. I'm holding my brother's hand. My father walks right in. You know, and the last time he's there, he killed her, you know, and he just walks right in as if as nothing had happened, goes right back to his study. My brother and I are kind of creeping in, you know, and, and we saw they tossed all the furniture and I don't know what they were looking for, but they they took all the um, uh, pillows and cushions off of all the furniture. And, um, and my father was behaving normal. Like, I don't know how you can walk back into the place where that happened and not be freaked out. But he was, but he didn't seem concerned about anything. He was looking at, at his closet door that the police had, had smashed in, which I don't know why they had to smash in his door, but (laughs) they did. And, um, he was, he was looking at, you know, what they were doing, they had done to his closet and not think, not talking about, thinking about that he killed his wife and he loved her. He really loved her. And. it was just bizarre. At that point, I looked at the lawyer and the lawyer looked at me and we were all kind of looking at each other. And my father, um, my brother and I said, you're going to come stay with us this weekend um, in New Jersey. And my father said, oh, why? And he didn't even understand why we wouldn't want to leave him alone in the apartment where he killed his wife.
0: Yeah. we mentioned that in our episode too, that it was almost as unsettling as the fact that he had committed this violent crime was the fact that he was so divorced from reality, you said, and it was so not like him, and that you actually didn't even stay at your own house because it was like unsettling to be under the same roof.
1: It was really, um, you know, he thought, he said, that we were being silly was the word he used for not wanting him to stay alone in the apartment. And meanwhile, you know, in the apartment, they had cut out a piece of the rug. They had taken all the sheets, you know, I mean, it was a crime scene. Um, there wasn't blood all over, which I was thankful for, but, um, but anyway, yeah, it was very bizarre, and within a couple of weeks, and so his lawyers sent him to to see to get a, a psychological and neurological evaluation. And had he not had the resources, I and mean, he was a wealthy man, and he had the money to have lawyers who would think of doing that, um, and he had the money to you know to pay for those kinds of doctors. If he didn't, his, his the end of his story would have been very different, and and the laws in the courts right now would be different because if he had this gigantic cyst on his brain, on his left frontal lobe, where, um, which is the part that controls your impulses and your, what they call executive functions, your, your higher, higher levels of, you know, predicting consequences, things like that. And also on the temporal lobe, which is a little on the side, and that controls things like aggression and, and, Stimulus bound responses where somebody slaps you and fight or flight kind of things. So, um, now when I first heard that he had this, my brother called me at work. And when he first told me that my father had this, they didn't know at that time whether it was a cyst or a tumor. They just knew that he had this thing. Um, I didn't really believe it, honestly. Um, I was, I thought, is this for real, or is this something that his really expensive lawyers are coming up with? Um, which you know, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure people who weren't related to him would all say, "Oh, well, his lawyers made it up." But I, I really wasn't sure.
0: You didn't actually see the scans till years later, right?
1: Right, and that's one thing that would have changed my whole life had I seen. Uh, So they sent him for all this testing and they sent him to this guy who's a very famous neurologist named Antonio Damasio. Um, And he was running the, this neurological lab at the university of, um, I think it was Iowa. And now he's in Southern California, but they studied all kinds of neurological criminal type things. And they assessed him as well. And, um, My father, my brother, my father, and I went to my father's neurologist in Manhattan. This was not someone that the lawyers had hired. This was someone who came recommended through my father's regular doctor. And he told us that the cyst, that it was a cyst, you know, where it was, And that it was very large. Now, I'm thinking, as I said in the book, like I'm thinking a large cyst is like the size of a walnut. You know, I'm thinking a little cyst is a tic tac, a medium cyst is maybe a raisin, and a large cyst is like a walnut. I'm not thinking citrus fruits, you know? Um, But he didn't show us the scans then. And so to me, um, not that it would be good to have a walnut sized tumor in your head anyway, but. As you said, when you see the the scans, and people can Google Herbert Weinstein brain and look at the image because it's it's there, um, you can't you can't help but say, okay, something has to be wrong with this this person because it's just it's like a quarter of his his skull, and um, and he did a bunch of testing, and some of the things were very interesting that Damasio did, where he does this skin conductance test, where um, it's, a, it's sort of like a lie detector, but um, they show you, they show the person uh, images like slides of, of different scenarios, either peaceful or tragic or really upsetting, and and um, and they measure your responses. And my father didn't have responses when he looked at the upsetting stuff, but when he when he was just looking at it. But if he was allowed to talk about it while looking at it, he had better responses, which showed, you know, some other sort of neurological issue. At any rate, um, I did come to believe that he had this problem, but it took me, and the reason that I wrote the book, it took me years um, of kind of trying to get to the bottom of it. I mean, a lot was going on in my life at that time, and I moved from um, the East Coast to San Francisco. Yay, San Francisco! (laughs) <laughs> yes. Love San Francisco. We're having a perfect day here today, too.
0: Oh, I'm so jealous. It's miserable here in New York.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 70 degrees and sunny here. Uh, but anyway, um, so the reason that I, I wrote the book, which is to answer your question, and is because I really wanted to understand what happened because I just... Um, it just didn't make sense to me, and and when I started reading, and I I really didn't intend to write a book. I just started researching neuroscience, brain functions, brain disorders, and then personality disorders. And I started learning about frontal lobe problems, and and um and there's all kinds of bizarre bizarre things that happen with brains that I had no idea about that are just fascinating.
0: Oh oh yes, actually I did promise our listeners that you would tell us kind of the the birth of neuroscience, this case of Phineas Gage. Yes. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that.
1: So Phineas Gage is sort of the birth of doctors understanding that the frontal lobes control personality. What happened, this guy was a railroad foreman back in, I think, 1848, something around there, and um, he was clearing, and he was very well-respected. He was a young guy. I think he was like 25. Everyone thought he was, you know, he was very well-respected, very responsible, very upstanding citizen, and... Um, he was clearing a pathway for the train track to go down, and he was um, tamping using a tamping iron to, to tamp down explosives into the ground so that they could clear the way. And accidentally, the explosives went off, and this iron rod, which I uh, I think it was like three feet long or six feet long, I don't remember now, um, went it shot up from the explosive, shot up through his skull from underneath and went through it like his his face, you know, through his eye. I mean, it, it was horrible. And it came out, The it came out like several yards away with brains all over it. And um, it was a miracle that he lived, but he actually lived and he was conscious. And they took him, they took him on like an ox cart or something <laughs> back in the day, um, back to his house. And the doctors, you know, were talking to him and he didn't seem to understand how badly he was injured. Um, and then what eventually happened is that, um, he did, he did recover. Um, he went through, it was, it wasn't an easy recovery, but when he was you know pretty much down the road from the initial infections and things like that, everybody noticed that they, they would say gauge is no longer gauge that he was, he wasn't the same person. He was, he was alive and he was functioning, but he was, uh, very, uh, like boorish. He was very, he used profanity all the time. He had a short temper. He was just like a miserable, you know, SOB. And, and it was, he was just like the antithesis of who he had been before.
0: Wow. And that seems like it very much dovetails with your experience with your father, even though you didn't know until the murder and, you know, finding the cyst, what struck me is you said his use of profanity. You mention in the book that when your father's arrested, he had just said to the detectives that him and his wife had been married for eight fucking years and, and we get along fucking famously. Yeah. Uh, apologies to my French, y'all. But it, that was so unlike your father. And we talked about Weinstein wisdoms and, and, and how, you know, he kind of thought that it was down class to do that. And like you weren't creative or intelligent enough to use other words. So that was a huge uh, sign to you that something was very wrong, including also this lack of response.
1: Right. And and I didn't see that police report where where they were quoting my father, where it was written out until many years later when I got it from Kevin Davis, who wrote another book about my father called The Brain Defense. Um he and I were sharing things and I could tell him the personal stuff and he's, you know, as an investigative reporter. He had all these things that I didn't know how you get a police report or things like that. So when I read that, when I read my father saying, you know, we were married for eight great fucking years and we got along fucking famously. I thought that's not my fa-. you know that's just not him i mean his weinstein wisdom that he was very strict about his code of ethics and he always said that using profanity is lazy and there's always a better word and for him to say that twice in in one sentence um just didn't feel like him and i think that that was a few minutes after the murder i mean he confessed to everything within a few minutes of being questioned but before he confessed when he was still kind of lying I'm looking at this police report and thinking he's lying and he's using profanity. And that's like two things that, that I just didn't think he would ever do. And when I asked him, uh, you know, why did you lie? Because I was surprised that he lied. He said, well, if there was ever a time to lie, that would have been it, you know, but.
0: Yeah. Joni, I, I like that part so much in your book that I actually read in our episode straight, from that part. Yeah. like I I really did because I was like, this is from Joni's book because it is, it's like, if there was ever a time to lie. Yep. When you just murdered your wife, I think that's the time, yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, I I guess that would be it. But when I think that he was still in, I think whatever snapped in his head at that moment when he killed her and when he, you know, for the 10 minutes and 15 minutes after and when he was being interviewed, I think his mind was still scrambled and i think he came back to himself when after he was saying you know oh great you know that they got along so fucking famously and everything and then when they say he stood up and then he sat back down and then he just told them everything that's when i think he came back to himself um and he wasn't lying he didn't lie and he just and he did just tell the truth um so Yeah, I mean, I I, in retrospect. uh, So when I in in writing the book, I started learning about all these brain things, and Phineas Gage, and then I learned about things like Capgras syndrome, where people think that um, there's that section where I talk about all the different kinds of weird things that can happen to people's brains. But Capgras to me is just fascinating. It's a syndrome where people are convinced like convinced that their loved one, and in one case, a dog is, is, um, an imposter that someone has taken away their loved one and replaced them with an exact duplicate.
0: I've heard That's about this. That's terrifying. I've heard and about that.
1: Yeah. And, and I believe that someone did actually murder one of the imposters because they were so frustrated with the imposter. Um, yeah, it's crazy and they don't know why it happens, but it happens. And they, and it's, um, it's just, I mean, there's so many bizarre things. There's Cotard syndrome where people are convinced that they're dead. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of weird things that, that can happen with the brain. So I became fascinated with that and I was reading it and reading it. And then I really said, you know what, like, I want to understand my father's brain. And that's when I started doing more research on, you know, particularly the frontal lobe things. And then I started realizing like, okay. I'm starting to get it now. Like, yeah, this does make sense of why he's like that. And then when I looked back on my life and I thought, you know, there's an incident that I talk about in the book where, um, my apartment had a big explosion in the middle of the night and my father called him at like five in the morning and he just was like, oh, okay. And hung up where, you know, like what parent does that? Um, I realized that he, because he was such a kind, generous man and such a great father, I never realized the deficits. I think that the empathy was probably always a deficit, but it wasn't obvious until he was with my stepmother, to me, anyway.
2: I was actually going to comment on that, which I'm sure you've thought about before, but I, it's, it had to have been so hard as a child growing up because you... The things that you didn't see that obviously, because I think Jesse, you mentioned that he could have had this from when he was born and it could have just been smaller and grown over time. And there were probably these things that you're looking back now as an adult and not only just as an adult, but um, a well studied and read about this field now where back in the day, you just thought he was so calm and Zen, but now you're like, oh my gosh, but as a kid, how are you supposed to be able to dissect that and figure out that, oh, wait, there's something that isn't right. You're just thinking he's calm and he's not anxious and all of these things that in some people's eyes is really positive that he didn't ever struggle with any of that stuff, but then evolved into what you experienced. So it just, it has to be so difficult. I can't imagine any kid having to differentiate that and figure that out for themselves.
1: My father was my hero until, until my mother died. And then when my stepmother came into the picture, um, You know, he didn't, he, he could have handled that better in terms of, you know, dealing with that. He still had a family, but a lot of guys, you know, it's not unusual for a guy to go marry somebody else after, you know, the first wife dies or whatever. And, you know, and then get more involved in their family than his family. Like that's not as unusual. I mean, I have a lot of friends who've gone through that.
0: I was wondering also that as the cyst grew, it seems like it also dovetailed like with yes definitely his lack of empathy around marrying barbara um but it seemed like the larger the sis grew the less he was the father you remembered you know the less he was the kind generous involved in your life involved in your interests yes. wanting to help so i don't know if there is an actual i, I certainly alluded to a connection in the episode cuz i felt like there was a connection there um but i don't know if there's a scientific connection with Yes, he was definitely 100% obsessed with Barbara and her family and, you know, being a part of her life, but his lack of all of those, that warmth that you had experienced in your childhood, it just kind of disappearing and evaporating, could that be linked to the cyst growing?
1: You know, it's very, it's interesting that you bring it up that way. And I was thinking about it from some of the stuff that we exchanged. And I I do think, you know, they said that the cyst had grown more in recent years with him, Uh, but he was 65 when this happened. So recent years could have been from the time that he was married to Barbara. So I do think that that could have definitely played a part in it. Um, I think he... Because when I looked back, trying to think about the times that he was never rattled by anything, I think a lot of the stuff was already there, like the not being bothered by anything, like the guy who said, you know, fuck you to his face, and he was like, oh, thank you, and walked away, you know, like, he he just, you couldn't ruffle him, but I never needed really, um, I'm, I don't really think that, there was no time that ever stood out in my childhood where he wasn't everything that he needed to be and more, but from, you know, but from that moment with Barbara when they got together, um, there were so many changes going on. I was moving out of the house. He was moving to New York. You know, it was hard to put you know put a uh, you know pinpoint on on when he changed more.
0: The house was like sold from underneath you. I mean, there were people coming in while you're trying to sleep,
1: like selling your alarm clock. Yeah, I woke up after a a night of partying, and I hear I hear my father talking to some guy with a very heavy Japanese accent, and he's and my father's telling him yes everything in the room because he was selling all the furniture in the house too, and the and the guy is like, "Uh, uh, you know that too, and he's pointing at my alarm clock behind my bed, and I'm and I wake up and I don't know what's going on, and I'm like I'm not included, I'm not included.
2: What a random thing to point at, though, too. It's like the random alarm clock. Like, that's what you're concerned about being included Isn't that in crazy? this beautiful like, house?
1: Exactly. Exactly. That was, you know, that was hysterical anyway. But um, but I, I just think that, um, well, as I say in the book, when I talked to my father and I confronted him about, you know, when he said, um, you know, I always know what my clients want, but I don't know what those closest to me want sometimes and he said he considered that a personal failing and and he knew like he knew that he didn't have the emotional range that was normal but he didn't know it was a brain cyst and he didn't know why he just thought that's how he is but when i did confront him you know when he said he didn't know that he that I needed him to be there when my apartment blew up and I didn't know if I was homeless. Um, I said, "How could you not know that?" And he's like, "I just didn't, you know." And 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 I believe him now. So when I look back on that, I'm like, "Well, that makes sense of why he he just didn't get it, you know." I can forgive him for not being there then because I understand that that didn't set off any kind of alarm in his head because nothing set off sets off alarms in his head.
0: Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about his relationships with women, your mother was terrible. (laughs) Not something I usually say to people, especially the first time I meet them. But uh, reading the book, like, you know, you had a very fraught relationship with her. She sounded like a very uh, difficult woman. And, you know, Barbara who is a victim, of course, um, also was difficult. You had a difficult relationship. Do you, what do you think it was because your dad was so calm that he attracted these types of women? Or do you think that was his type or, uh, because I think that you were very hopeful when he met somebody and you were very open to him meeting somebody. Cause you were aware that he had gone through two years of hell caretaking for your mother while she was dying of cancer. Um, and then it was just such a bummer because you had lost the opportunity once more to have any sort of a warm mothering presence. Right. But yeah, what is your perspective on your father's relationship, and how has it affected you with your interpersonal relationships?
1: Good questions. So uh, my mother was very difficult, and you know, as I describe my mother and father in the book, is like Captain Kirk and Mister Spock. Like Captain Kirk is the emotional one, and you know, Mister Spock is the calm one, and when you know, the shit hits the fan for Captain Kirk, he goes to Spock. Um, It was kind of, it was kind of like that. I think that my father, in this world, there are some difficult women who may be very attractive in other ways, but eventually when someone's dating them, they figure out that this is a difficult woman and this, you know, is probably going to be a nightmare. I think, I think that the things that make those women a nightmare just rolled off my father's back. Like, it didn't, the things that she would do or say, like, you know, insulting my father, like Barbara insulting me and my brother all the time, especially my brother. Cause he was in their life more like, who does that? Why there was no point to doing that. I mean, there, I, I, you know, I have my theories of why she did that, but, um, but I think that he, because those things didn't bother him to him. When I, when I would say to him, how can you let her, How can you let her, uh, you know, insult your son right in front of you and, you know, in front of him, in front of you? And he's, and his answer was, I know it's not true, so it doesn't matter. And in his head, it's not true and it doesn't matter, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter to my brother who's standing there or me hearing about it. Um, So something like that, another, another husband would have gotten pretty, you know, (laughs) pissed off about, but my father to him, it's nothing. So I think that he could um, he could glean the rewards of the attractive parts of the women, and the parts that would drive other people insane didn't drive him insane, because uh, my father could look at someone who was, I, I think I talked about it in the book where I would sometimes ask my father, because he never said anything bad about anyone, and I would say, isn't, you know, so-and-so just, like, intolerable or whatever. And he'd say, Oh yeah, she's like, um, you know, she's a, a real, uh, you know, he'd come up with some sentence, you know, some crazy sentence about, Oh, she's a real instigator of friction among blah, 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 you know? And, um, and he would, so he knew that it was happening, but it didn't, he, it wasn't like, Oh, but yeah, she's a crazy bitch. It was like, it was just something that he observed. So, um, and so my mother, I think, um, you know, she, she had a rough background and, but she, when he met her, she was, you know, she was very attractive woman, my mother. And. Oh yeah.
0: Their uh, wedding photo is she's gorgeous. I mean, gorgeous.
1: Yeah. She was, she was really pretty. And, um, uh, she was old to get married. I mean, she you know grew up on a farm and back then, if you were over 18 and weren't married, you were like an old maid. And she was like 33 when she got married to my father.
0: Yeah. And she was pretty independent. You know, she was in the um, the Air Corps in World War II. And then she worked in hospitality in Miami and New York and yep. she lived on her own. Like that was un- unheard of in the forties and fifties.
1: So yeah, exactly. So she was very, you know, independent. Um, I think that in terms of, you know, relationships, he could overlook the parts that would make attractive women suddenly unattractive to other men in terms of how it shapes you know my relationships after the murder happened i was seeing a therapist like every single night (laughs) because it was like you know for like six months as you should yes, as one does (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know she, she she finally said jonah you're very healthy you're gonna be fine just don't just be careful that you don't marry a guy who's emotionally unavailable because, um, you know, your father was emotionally unavailable. And meanwhile, I'm saying, but my father wasn't emotionally unavailable in all the good ways. So, um, I don't think it really affected, uh, my ex now. Um, he was, uh, he was an emotionally available, very emotionally available and, you know, super smart and, um, uh, you know, I'm sure my father would have liked him a lot, but I don't, he wasn't like my father. So um, I don't know that it affected me, you know, that, that much. And then of course there's the third wife too, that my father had.
0: Yes. I really wanted to talk about I her. Really I really want know, to talk I about Bertie too. Yes.
2: Yes. Andy, Andy, ask all of the questions we have, please. Oh, I mean, obviously like we're talking about Bertie, who, she was a special ed teacher, right? Jesse?
1: Yes, she was a special. Now I don't know if she's still alive or not, honestly. And I use aliases for her, but um, yeah, she was uh, again younger, a lot younger than my father. I think maybe ten years younger. Um, and they met, and you know, I told the story about how they met from New York Magazine personals, which. Um, you know a lot of people are afraid of answering personal ads cuz they're like what if i what if i meet some guy who's like you know a, a psycho killer and murdered his last wife and here's my father who murdered his last wife answering an ad in new york magazine now the crazy crazy thing is you say to yourself like they and that's how they met he was he was getting bored and lonely while he was out on on uh bail and so he answered this ad And they met on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum in Manhattan. And my father told me that um, within the first five minutes that he knew that, like, they really hit it off. So he wanted to tell her his situation. To this day, I regret not asking my father the specific words that he used to tell her what his situation was. But he told her. And... She seemed to be okay with it because they continued their brunch date, went to the museum. She wound up going back to his apartment for drinks that night. And they wound up having, you know, like having this affair and getting married before he went to prison. I do not know. Like, I, I, I I don't know what goes on in someone's (laughs) mind like that. I did find out and I kept away. Like, I mean, you know, and she was trying to have a relationship with me. She would mail me, Things and kind of weird cards and um and I and my father kept pushing like he really wanted me to have a relationship with her and he's like you know you should really uh you know call Birdie or talk to Birdie or this and that I'm like look if you listen to me about the last wife you you wouldn't be in this you wouldn't be in this situation I don't need another stepmother she's three thousand miles away like you know it's it's I don't need to know um but I found out later from my brother who was you know, closer with that whole situation that, um, she had a a lot of serious issues herself. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, as I say, I don't know if she's alive, so I don't want to talk about her serious issues, but she, she had serious, uh, you know, emotional and mental issues, which, um, which I guess made her not care whether you know what happened with my father which is just i mean the chances of that the ch- just the chances of of that whole meeting and happening that he would meet someone who wouldn't go running down 5th avenue away from him and then uh, it's just it's just unbelievable
0: it is absolutely shocking we were floored when we talked about it in the episode and uh your your father must have had some charisma <laughs>
1: My father was a very, very charming man, and he always saw the best in people. Like he would make you, you no, know, like he would meet someone and he would just make you feel good about being you, you know. And and that was sort of like the difference between my parents. My father would make me feel great about anything I did, and my mother would make me feel bad about anything I did. But my father was very, um, he was like old timey gentleman, you know. He was very um, chivalrous kind of guy, so. Um, and and very and pretty you know pretty quiet pretty much um, you know I mean he could make conversation but he he was kind of a um, you know sort of passive but when but when he you know needed to be present for other people in parties and stuff he was very charming and um, and it was a shot to everyone I mean his best friend said I've known your father fifty years and I've never even seen him get angry once mm-hmm. um, so you know, in the beginning of all this, I would have been, I would have been perfect. I mean, not that you can be content or satisfied with an answer about something like this, but if he had just said, you know what, I got really mad and I, and I hit her and that was it. And, and, um, and he never would have hit her had she not attacked him twice first, because in the fight, she, um, she went to scratch his eyes out. And when I saw his eyes a week later, I'm not kidding. Like there were, you know, there were scabs right in the creases by his eyes. Like she wasn't fooling around. So, um, the idea that he would, um, that he would ever be violent was just, beyond anything. But if he had said to me, you know, she was insulting your brother. She was insulting you. She was getting on my last nerve, which I can't even imagine my father having a last nerve. But if he had said, you know, she got on my last nerve and I just lost it. I just couldn't take it anymore and blah, blah, blah. And I I killed her. Um, I would have accepted that, but he really loved her. He didn't have a buildup of stuff. It was all, um, it, it all made sense to me when I went into the neuroscience of where that cyst was and, and what they call stimulus bound aggression, which my father always just used his words when somebody would get into a, any kind of disagreement with him, but she was physically attacking him and then he didn't do anything. And then she physically attacked him again. And that's when, um and that's when he hit her and then she fell down and then he, he was, he just beat her to death. And he, and he told me, And this is something I talked about in the book. He told me, um, I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't stop. And he told me that the first time I saw him, you know, when he got out of um, Rikers. And one of the things that you learn about the criminal justice system, and and this is sort of, I think, something that you wanted to talk about too, is um, in most states in the United States, they have what's called the M. Naughton rule, which says that in order to be found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect or insanity as they call it colloquially um you have to not know that what you were doing was wrong but neurologically um you can talk to tons of neuroscientists now you can totally know that what you're doing is wrong and not be able to stop because it's the it's the frontal lobe connections and the um it, it's the impulse control that's controlling what your actions are. It's not your moral center of knowing what's right and wrong. So you can know something's wrong, but not be able to stop yourself.
0: I want to talk about like the moment that you found out about the murder to the moment you found out about the cyst. Now, when you found out your father had killed your stepmother, did it change your relationship, your thought process with him? And then what was returned to you when you found out that it had actually been beyond his control? You know, what was that emotional journey like?
1: when it first happened, you know, obviously it was such a shocking, shocking thing. Um, I mean, any murder, any murder in your family is going to be shocking, but, um, from someone like my father was extra shocking. And the fact that it, you know, he threw her out a window in the middle of the Upper East Side was extra shocking. Um, I really didn't know how to think about it. Um, and it was the first week, the murder was on a Monday, and he got out of Rikers on bail on uh, the, the arraignment was Tuesday, and then he got out on Friday. And during that time, I just thought, I don't know, she must have really ticked him off. And he must, and my brother and I kept thinking, he must be suicidal. He knows that he, I mean, he killed the woman he loved. He's got to know that the rest of his life is going to be in jail. Like, you know, he, he's probably suicidal. And we just kept thinking that way. Um, neither of us really. There It was just big questions, you know, like I couldn't even, I couldn't even form like real thoughts about why did he do this? Because it just, it was just so beyond anything I could imagine that.
0: You were almost in shock. It was like, yeah, a, like actual yeah. medical shock
1: almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really didn't know um, what to think. And I, And then when I saw him on that Friday and he was behaving so normally, then I knew something was really weird with him. But again, I didn't know that he had a brain cyst yet. I just knew that everything, everything in my life was topsy turvy. It was like, he killed her. And now he's acting so normal. Like I mean, the the killing is horrendous, but acting normal afterwards was even more of a mind screw than you know, just trying to figure out like, how can you be so normal? Um, that was just you know beyond me so i didn't really um it was only a couple of weeks before we found out that he had the brain uh problem and as i say when i first heard it i thought it w- it was might have been something his lawyers made up but i really couldn't i couldn't understand it i really couldn't understand how why he um you know why he did what he did and when he told me you know on that friday he said He told me what had happened that they, you know, she was insulting me and my brother and which was nothing new. So it wasn't like, you know, there were newspaper articles of how she was insulting his kids and he flew into a rage and blah, blah, blah. And it's like he wasn't a fly into a rage kind of guy. And these insults weren't anything she hadn't said a hundred times. So. I just didn't, um, you know, when he said, you know, that she attacked him, she attacked him again, and then he hit her, and then, and then he said, I kept hitting her and I couldn't stop. And I said, is it was it like an out of body experience? And he said, I don't know, but I knew it was wrong and I couldn't stop. And. I didn't know what to, you know. I, I it, it, it just was what it was. I had no idea until once I found out about the cyst and that it was kind of a legit thing. I gave it some credence and said, okay, there must be something wrong with him. But I didn't really, really internalize it and forgive him for things and come to peace with it until I started doing all that research. And that's when I decided to write the book and go through the whole process of, you know, this is, this is really. You know this is how he was he was he was never a monster um this is what happened and and this is why and the idea that that um you know because of him, because he had the money to pay for lawyers who um could fight for the right, it took two years to win what they call a fry hearing, which is when they when lawyers try to get a new kind of evidence into um, into a trial. So no one had been using brain scans in a guilty or innocence phase of a trial before. And the judge had to rule on whether this was scientifically sound and they could rely on this or not. Like, can the jury see this or can the jury not see this? And, um, that took two years. Now, meanwhile, at that time, I hadn't seen the scan myself, but, um, it it took that long just to get that all you know to happen. So the idea that um, so before him, you couldn't have you couldn't have entered your your brain scans in. But now you've got NFL players, you've got um, war veterans, you've got all kinds of people who've had traumatic brain injuries who have done things that are you know unspeakable and unpredictable. And then, when they take a look at the person's brain scan, they find these, you know, these major brain injuries or cysts. Or I mean, with the the football players, that CTE that you know that they have, um, like Aaron Hernandez, who committed a, a murder and was sent to jail and committed suicide. When they opened his skull up, they said it was the worst case of CTE that they had ever seen. Um, and you have different. Uh, People come back, you'll hear about it a lot where, uh, you know, one of the war vets comes back, they look fine, but their head got rattled by an IED and their brain is injured. And then all of a sudden they kill their whole family and themselves out of nowhere. And then they'll blame it on PTSD, but it's really a brain issue.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, Andy, one of our uh, more popular episodes was Zach and Addy in in New Orleans, and that was a a similar situation where a a war vet who had seen a lot of combat uh, committed a horrific murder-suicide, and everyone said that that was aberrant to his nature, you know?
1: Did they ever do a brain...
0: Don't. No. I mean, they really did mostly blame it on PTSD. You're right. Um, I think that's we spent most of that episode talking about PTSD and less about his brain injury. So I'm curious. I want to like actually look back at that case too and see if they did, uh, you know, look at his brain because it was a it was a very bizarre murder situation
1: well there's a case you know the the tower do you remember the tower shooter in houston with the the guy who killed it was like 50 years ago that he killed a whole bunch of people from the tower with a gun and everything i forgot his name now um He had been seeking help because he knew something was wrong. He was getting angry. He was having all these problems and he was getting these horrible headaches and he and he sought a lot of help a lot of times and no one was helping him. And eventually he went up to the tower and, you know, he shot all these people. And but he left this suicide note saying um, that he wanted his brain to be by to, to be in the autopsy to be looked at because he thought there was something wrong with his brain and it turned out that he did have a walnut sized tumor in his brain and um and then of course people people even now when neuroscience has moved further along people don't want to accept those they want to go by behavior because we're used to behavior we're used to saying oh well that person did that because of this like you know sort of everyday stuff you don't want to have to think down into the layers of you know somebody's cranium to figure out why they did something um and you know one of the things that we were talking about is what do you do with someone like my father you know what what what's the right thing and um Personally, um, well, at the time, you know, there were there was only two, and even now, there's only two choices. Either, um, you know, you can, I mean, if you if you're not found not guilty, but we're going to assume that he's going to be found guilty or not guilty by uh, mental disease or defect. So either you go to prison or you go to a, a mental hospital, a state, you know, criminal mental institution. If anyone's ever seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know that you would rather be in prison than be in one of those facilities. It's that is worse than being in a maximum security prison. So, um, so what do you do? And that's, that is the question. And at the time prison, even my father's lawyer said, you know, prison is the better, is the better choice for you. Um, and I do believe that's right. And I, I also felt that when it first happened, um, and I didn't know anything about the brain cyst, uh, I would have. And I, I'm not, I'm anti-death penalty now, but back then I wasn't. And I thought, if there's a death penalty, you know, I thought he had to, he should be in jail for the rest of his life, in prison for the rest of his life. And if there was a death penalty, I thought he was certainly eligible. Um, that's when I didn't know anything. Then when I learned about the brain cyst, I thought, okay, but I still thought that he should be in prison or wherever for the rest of his life, because I didn't think that he should be out. And, and,
0: um, well, that's the catch 22 of it. If, if it was the cyst that caused the reaction that resulted in somebody's death, uh, was he really at fault? Perhaps not. But if you can't remove the cyst then he is still a danger to society because somebody could try to mug him or, you know, somebody gets into a a, a different type of altercation um, and it potentially could have, you know, caused the same response, that same uh ag- like response where somebody was being aggressive yes. towards him. Now, while he was in prison, he never had any issues at all, right? I mean, he wasn't in fights. He didn't have no. Any issues?
1: No, he was a uh, a model prisoner, and uh, and what was really weird, but not so weird. This is this is how how little things that would affect most people affected him. My father was used to a very luxurious life, like he you know he ate at fabulous New York restaurants, you know, several times a week, and went to Broadway plays, and you know lived a very nice life. Now he's in prison, and not once in the he was there fourteen years. And not once did he complain about anything to me. Like, not like the food here sucks. Not like I, you know, it smells or people are stupid or, you know, like nothing, nothing. And I said, well, like he's and he said the lines for everything are just like they take forever and he and he said that you know the place is very inefficient and uh, i said well don't you get frustrated because it's so inefficient and he said what am i gonna do you know he said i have to laugh at it like he if there if it wasn't something he could change he would just you know he'll just laugh at it where me i would have been like i can't stand this goddamn place <laughs> the only thing that he was upset about and all that time was that at one point they transferred him from one prison to another prison. And he wasn't allowed to teach, um, GED classes. He used to teach, uh, prisoners to get their high school, uh, equivalency diplomas. And, um, and he wanted to do that in the new prison and they wouldn't let him do it. And instead they made him his, he had a job, his job was to like dust the windowsills or something. And he's like, this is just such a waste that I could be helping these people. And they had me dusting a windowsill. But that was the only thing that, that, you know, kind of, um, you know, bothered him.
0: Well, I think we're going to probably start wrapping it up after a couple more questions, but I know that Andy, you specifically had a question about, uh, your brother's reaction because to sum it up guys, um, you know, this is a long ongoing, um, insult and complaint that Barbara would make about Joni's brother. And this had happened so many times in the past. And, Uh, then obviously uh, the fight about your brother um, triggered this episode in which Barbara attacked your father and then your father killed Barbara. So, Andy, I know that you had some thoughts around that because I purposely, you know, tried not to mention your brother as much for privacy reasons. Um, But yeah, Andy, do you want to ask your questions?
2: Yeah, I was just curious about just how your brother felt um, in regards to the entire situation. I mean, it had to have been a little bit of a different feeling because of the fight kind of triggering the whole episode. Um, And obviously it being something that your father was so good at letting it roll off his back in the past, whether it was about, you know, both you guys, whether he knew it wasn't true. um, So he could just let it go. But, um, but I was just curious if he you know, how he dealt with that. And if he had, and obviously if you're comfortable talking about it, it's all within whatever you're comfortable with. But I was just curious if there was any sort of like difference in your guys' personal experiences with the situation, um, because of the fight being the trigger. The
1: fight being, you know, like the, the, the trigger, you know, could have been anything really. I mean, she was just trying to get a rise out of my father, but, um, my brother and I have dealt with it very differently. And, and he really, you know, he, it was the worst time for him. I mean, it was the worst time for me too, but he actually had, was there in the apartment when my father, you know, uh, paged him to come and that's gotta be very traumatic and all that. And he just doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't, I know that we see some things differently, but to him, he doesn't really talk about it that much because Um, he just wants it in the past. And I'm the one who's like, I got to know every detail. I got to figure this out. You know, I believe this. I believe that
0: you're, you're our people. We need to know everything. We need to know every detail.
1: Yeah. So, so I really, I really couldn't say, I really couldn't say, you know, um, how he feels about that. I don't think that, um, I really, I really couldn't
2: say. I mean, you answered the question just with that. I think it's really interesting just to like talk in general about how people deal with situations that are this extreme and the fact that you wrote, um, and, you know, deep dove into all of this neuroscience, you know, studies and trying to learn about it. It seems like writing the book was extremely cathartic for you. And you were able to like move past so many things in regards to your father in general, your relationship with your father, the murder surrounding your father. So I feel like it's just so interesting to see how different people react. And and like you said, Jesse grieve to situations like this and um, and you being able to write the book. I mean, it's just it's going to help so many other people out there.
1: I hope so. One of the things that uh, Jesse and I were emailing about is the victim services thing. I think you wanted me to- Yes,
2: I did want to talk about this
0: because this didn't make it into the episode and I really wish it had. Um, There's a very profound moment in Joni's memoir where victim services calls you and they wanted to counsel you and you thought, oh, wow, they have the wrong number. They're trying to call Barbara's daughter. Right. I'm I'm not a victim in this. And then they helped you to realize that you were. Yeah. That the family members and loved ones of somebody who commits a murder, they're also victims of that action. And I'd like you to speak to that because, you know, Andy and I are pretty tough on murderers on the show. And, uh, you know, I, I think we try to do a good job of being empathetic, but there's not usually empathy guided toward the family members of the person who committed the murder. So let's talk about that.
1: Okay. Yeah. That was, that was a big revelation to me. I had moved to San Francisco and I was here, I don't know, maybe a year or something. And I got this phone call uh, from New York uh, victim services. And I said, Oh no, no, no. You want, um, you know, you want my stepsister and they're like, no, you know, you're a victim. Um, you're a victim of this crime. You're just not the, how did they put it? Um, uh, I forgot exactly the words it's in my book, but, um, that, you know, I was a victim of this crime and that, um, you know, it had changed my whole life too. And, and that they, they had services and, you know, did I want it uh, you know, talk about it and whatever. And just her saying that I was, that I know that you are a victim of this and I don't want to think of myself as a victim. You know, nobody wants to think of themselves as a victim, but, um, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, the families of people who do things like this, um, you know, I'm not saying every family is like my family was, I mean, I, you know, we're not like the typical profile of a family that's going to have a murderer, but, um, but there are plenty of families who have someone who does something horrible and and then the world sees them through the lens of oh well they're related to that person they must be you know somehow bad you know I, I mean people assume that i had once the the murder happened people assume that my father was like a horrible father and that i must have been abused as a kid and all this i'm like are you kidding like he couldn't have been better um but I, I do think that there's and I looked online for like support, you know, there's support groups for everything out there, but there I could not find a support group for people who are relatives of murderers, which is you know, it's really interesting That's a, a
0: glaring lack, I would say, because i I would imagine it's a I mean, we talk about it on this episode about actually you grieving your mother, how um it's just such a complicated process to grieve a complicated person. and i would I would think that there would be support for that, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would think so. And I have actually met, um, uh, I've met one person and spoke to one person who had close family members, murder other family members. And and the cases are so different that I almost can see why. Like, well, you know, one of them was a woman who, whose father murdered her mother, and uh, but they were old and he, and it, it was some weird <clears throat> some weird thing where um, he, he didn't want to commit suicide because uh, some Catholic thing. And then, but, but he killed her be, because I, I forgot what, how they reasoned it. It didn't make any sense to me, but it was when somebody wants to kill themselves that sometimes when they're old, they'll kill their spouse. I don't know. I, I didn't understand her whole reasoning and I'm like, well, I wouldn't get any help from her. And then another one was just, you know, had a very abusive uh, father who wound up shooting his mother and, you know, he, it was kind of a story like you would expect, like he was abusive and one day, you know, he went too far, but, um, you know, these other kinds of, uh, you know, it's hard for me to explain to people sort of the book explains it, but how, um, that there, that there are, uh you know besides just sort of what you think of as reasons for people doing what they do that people do things for all kinds on um, different levels why they behave and and Dr. Robert Sapolsky from Stanford has a book called behave and it talks about how we behave all the way down to like the cellular level, your hormones affect you, your, you know, your brain affects you, all these how all the different things affect you. And, um, and a lot of times we don't know why we do certain things. So, but one thing that I do know is when I hear about some bizarre murder, that's out of the blue and, you know, from someone that they don't expect, the first thing I try to look for is, did they take a brain scan? Mm -hmm. Because I, I'm always convinced that there's some sort of, you know, there's going to be some kind of brain thing happening there. But in the book, I talked about the um, the judges. There was a study that uh, they did in Israel with like 1,200 judges. And they f- they figured out that the longer it is from the time that the judge sits down after a meal – Uh, to like say, you you know, say you come in and you're trying to get bail at nine o'clock in the morning. He's just had breakfast and, you know, you come up for bail and about 65 percent of people will get bail in the beginning of the of the sugar, the sugar blood sugar cycle. Yeah. By the time lunchtime comes around, it's down to zero percent of people are getting bail. And then after lunch, it's back up to 65 percent. And by dinner, it's down to zero percent. So, you know, and but if you ask the judges, why did you give this one bail, you know, versus that one that you didn't, they'll give you some, you know, intellectually thought out reason. But the fact is, is that you can predict it by when the last time they ate was.
0: That is so wild. And I have to say, guys, this was a, a landmark legal case uh, because of letting neuroscience into the courtroom. Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating. I have to say, Andy, going forward, talking about our episodes, I think I'll always be thinking about this one. I'll always be wondering about somebody's brain health when they commit these atrocious crimes, especially because we do cover occasionally very old crimes uh you know from the 1800s or early 1900s or even mid- 1900s uh where now I'm wondering what was going on up there
1: there's definitely a lot more cases and it's been used there's a uh there's a professor at Duke who tra- uh, tracks how many people are using brain defenses and it's gone up and they call it like a hockey stick it goes you know it was level and then it just has been going up 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 um and I don't believe everyone you know I and I, like I look at certain crimes and I'm like you know put them away forever, you know, but, um, and again, I don't know what do you do with certain people and what causes this and that, but I do think that, um, I do think the criminal, as Dr. Robert Sapolsky says, like today's modern neuroscience is not compatible with the criminal justice system. Yeah. Because we know so much more now about why things happen. And they find when they do x-rays and things on prisoners, you know, that there's a huge percentage of people in the prison population who have traumatic brain injuries. A lot of them were abused as kids. Their mother hit them with a frying pan. You know, their father knocked them against the wall. Oh,
0: we talk about the serial killers who have multiple head injuries uh, in their childhood. And, you know, obviously it affects some of their behaviors later.
1: It's, um, you know, it's it's amazing. And, and now there's, um, so my father's case is now like all these books back here. He's in pretty much all the books. Wow. But, one, but now there's a, this is just the, newest edition of Law and Neuroscience, which is like a 900-page textbook that they use at all, like Harvard Law and Yale and all the, the big law schools. Um, and the the very beginning is the whole story of my father um, because, because he was the sort of the birth of, of neuroscience in the courtroom. So well, it's,
0: it's absolutely fascinating. And and guys, I got to tell you, you really should go buy Joni's book, Full Frontal Murder, a memoir by Joni West. Joni with an I. And...
1: J-O-N-I. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. And uh, because there's just so much about your life, there's more obviously about the crime and about the neuroscience, um, but you also have a very fascinating life and you have an, uh, a unique story for so many reasons that do not all involve your father murdering your stepmother uh so I very much encourage each and every one of you to check it out uh it's wherever you buy books go to Amazon leave a review for Joni um and I have to say thank you so much I yes, really really you. do hope that um you know writing your memoir which is excellently written for a first-time author I have to say um, I really do hope that it did bring you some peace and, and closure.
1: It definitely did. And it's and it's good to have it all in sort of in one place because when people, when I do decide to tell someone about it, it's, you know, it's it's a complex story. So now rather than have to tell someone for three hours, you know, say, okay, let's go out to dinner and I'll t- talk to you for three hours. I say, well, maybe you want to get the book and then we can <laughs> talk about it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh,
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate
0: it. Yeah, it was great to meet you. And I'm sure we'll be in touch in the future. Thank you so much. Take care.
1: Okay, thanks. Thank you, Joni. Bye.